Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 31 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 1st of September. And Leon, this week we're talking to Professor Asher Rao of RMIT about the money laundering scandal. That's right, Asher Rao is RMIT's Associate Dean of Mathematical Science and she's does a lot of uh, work in the area of risk management. She knows all about the money laundering issues at the CBA, so she's going to shed light on it. And, of course, that's brought on an independent inquiry, as uh, Leon will tell you about a bit later on, but it's not going to be conducted by APRA. And after that, we're going to chat with AMP economist Shane Oliver about the very mixed bag of results from the company reporting season. But now let's listen to Professor Rao. I should point out that Professor Rao, when we spoke to her, was in India. Uh, We spoke by Skype and the line was not terribly good. Um, There's a bit of distortion, for which we apologise. Asher, Rao, you're a specialist in mathematical science and I believe you've been looking at money laundering. Yes, yes. Uh, Though I have to clarify, I am, yeah, my my PhD is in algebra, so mathematics. But over the past few years, I've sort of dabbled in a huge number of different research areas and including risk management and uh, money laundering anti-money laundering. So how, how does that work in mathematical science? Um, no, it is not in mathematical sciences at all. It's all to do with risk management. Uh, because what happened is about, uh, must be over 10, 11 years ago, I ran, I run the, I, I used to run the Masters in Information Security and Assurance. And uh, industry asked us to put in risk management. And so I have to basically teach the standard uh, the risk management standard, what is uh, ISO 31000 now, was ANZ, uh, AS, uh, yes, ASNZS 4360 before. So it's just basically uh, risk management. So I took on uh, took on the role because the business faculty did not teach any risk management at that time, you know, this was back in 2006. I sat on the Standards Australia board for about three, in the risk management area for about four, five years. Uh, spoke to a huge number of business leaders in uh, in risk management, you know, from ANZ and everything. People in information security talking about how information systems connect to, you know, uh, are very important in the role of of risk managing risk for an organization. So, you know, because as we become more and more uh, reliant on computers and we do more and more things, you know, digitally and online. Uh, it becomes more and more important that information systems risk management is is done properly. Well, as as you know, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia is now embroiled in uh, well, they've been charged with there's fifty three thousand charges of money laundering and with uh, criminal gangs laundering millions of dollars through their intelligent deposit machines. Uh, what's your yes. view about that? I think it was it is a failure of risk management of uh, of not putting in the proper control processes, uh, which will alert, because this is the whole point, if you have an intelligent deposit machine, which is counting that the minute it crosses that 10,000 barrier, which is what the uh, OSTRAC has put in, uh, it it should have reported it. It should have immediately generated an alert saying that, uh, you know, a deposit of 10,000 has gone in. Because the problem is not so much depositing 10,000, you and I can go and do it. As long as we do it, through our accounts, Ostrak doesn't mind because it wants to track the money. And if people come in and do it anonymously, which is what you can do with an uh, ID, uh, you know, intelligent deposit machine, um, you can put the money in and you can pretend to be, I don't know, uh, Joe Blow or, you know, 
they have funny names like terrorist. <laughs> so, so you could potentially you could uh, cuckoo it onto someone else's account. Uh, you not may put it into somebody else's account. You, it, it's usually the deposits are done uh, without uh, knowing who has deposited, which is the whole uh, starting point. Is so that you don't know where the money is coming from, which is what uh, the government doesn't like, and then the on transfer. So, I mean, how is it possible? I mean, th- these people did it with millions of dollars. I mean, I can't even imagine how you could do it with millions of dollars through a machine. You, you can. You don't do the whole thing at one shot. If you if you deposit it, for example, $100,000, uh, that would immediately, I, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, uh, would uh, would ring alarm bells. But you could go in. And if you remember, if you're coming from interna- on, an, on an airplane, for example, they ask you, that customs form asks you to declare if you're carrying more than $10,000. Nobody actually checks you. That's where it starts. So you start, you come in. So if you are, if you are an a citizen like you and me if you're bringing in 10,000 because they're not it's not for tax purposes it's basically for money laundering purposes so if you bring it in and you declare it the the tax office is fine with that you know because then they can track it but if you come in and you don't declare it and you know and if you are just you know just a, a tourist or somebody or just just coming back in you know you, and you, your intention is to is to do money laundering. And you have to remember, the, these people don't do it with each person coming in with a hundred thousand. It's a lot of small deposits of hundred of ten thousand and twenty thousand dollars. But Ashley, would these people have bought identities on the black market or you know the black internet? Uh, no, not necessarily at all. I think the whole thing with the with the Commonwealth this one was that uh, it was not asking because the whole idea of the Anti Money Laundering Act is know your customers, so KYC, uh, which basically means. That that when you're putting in a deposit, you need to tell who you are. So if you if you rocked up to a bank and you know to a teller, actual teller, a live teller, and you gave her or him you know ten thousand dollars to deposit, they would ask for ID. They would ask you to show who you are. But if you have one of these IDM machines, intelligent deposit machines, it's uh, obviously the IDM was just taking the money and not caring that you know. Uh, this, this is a deposit of over 10000 I need to ask for ID. Morris Brackburn is now conducting a, a class action against the Commonwealth Bank. And uh, yes. the allegation is that uh, the board of uh, the Commonwealth Bank knew of these transactions back in 2015, but, they, uh, but the market was only alerted in 2017. Uh, that says something, doesn't it, about the risk management and also governance? Absolutely. It says a lot about governance. It says a lot about the risk management. Uh, the fact is that, you know, for a, for example, the example that I try to give is of what is called the Sarbanes-Oxley Act in the U.S., which asks, which says that you have to report to, uh, to the board equivalent to the ASIC or the SEC, as it is called in the U.S., you have to report, I think, within about 15 days or something like that. And I don't know if that equivalent is there with ASIC. I suppose they are supposed to, this thing, but they must have just, you know, because look at the other few scandals that uh, Commonwealth Bank has been involved in. They're just keeping it. We don't know if it's the board which has done it, whether the board knew of it, but the whole point is that the information should flow through the board. That is good governance. That is good risk management. That it actually flows through to the board, and the board knows that this has happened and alerts uh, first Austrac and ASIC uh, immediately about as soon as they knew. And so if they have not, it means there is uh, there is a governance issue because it's not. So if, if Austrac's uh, uh, case goes through and it's upheld, then it is they are looking at 53,000 cases against 
of money laundering, cases of money laundering against a Commonwealth Bank, which comes to, for each case, it's $18 million. So you're looking at billions of dollars. You're looking at a trillion dollar fine. Yes, which could wipe out the Commonwealth Bank. In this sort of transaction that's been done, allegedly illegal transaction, there is no, it's largely cash money. Cash is anonymous. There's no audit trail, is there? No, there isn't. And that's where the where it is falling apart is because uh, the IDM should have said, right, uh, I cannot accept this because, uh, you know, you need to show me ID or you need to go into the teller and give it in. The minute it was over 10,000, as soon as it hits the 10,000 mark, it should either reject it or ask for ID or hold the money and say, ask for ID. You know, so that's all it needs. It, you know, I don't know what the processes are there. And they say it's a systems failure, but that's what... And I don't know what Austrac requires you to do because you know this is this is uh, it is uh, privileged information because uh, you don't want the money launderers to know this. But it should have uh, alerted the bank immediately the first time such a transaction happened. So if the money launderer, the person who comes in and is putting, so it's usually not the money launderer who is actually putting the money in. It's you know it's innocent people who have been conned. All there are this money laundering happens by because a lot of innocent people are conned into believing uh, that uh, you know they are they are they have a legitimate job, and it's only after some time they realize you know. So it is. I don't know if you've seen the ads where they say, okay, work from home and you can make thousands of dollars and this is what it is. So so these these innocent people are basically just mules uh, carrying the uh, dirty right. money. Yep. So is this a breakdown in the system the Commonwealth Bank only discovered later on? It is, it is possible. It is entirely possible that uh, it, they discovered it late, uh, but it does mean there is a failure of control, of risk control. You know, the fact that uh, the, uh, the software, according to the Commonwealth Bank, the software was updated and there was a glitch and there was a software error, which then caused this, uh, which means that uh, there weren't controls because, you know, controls, uh, risk controls have to be put in one on top of the other. So that if one control fails, then there is another control which comes into place. So it looks like this the system failure was there, uh, which is which is entirely possible because, you know, software is not, you know, is not checked by any degree. But it means that there wasn't another control sitting on top of that, uh, which could have, you know, I'm, I'm alleging, of course, that there was possibly not another control which caught that control until some some human. The allegation is that one man would, was going around Melbourne with a whole stack of pirated IDs and uploading okay. millions of dollars would appear to the bank as a variety of uh, depositors, but in fact it was one man. It is possible. It is it is entirely possible. Whether uh, you know whether it is probable is a different is a different question. Whether there would be one person going around doing it, uh, the whole thing with the IDM and what is being alleged and what is being said, it looks like there was not any ID being checked at all. I don't know. That's the whether it was there was no ID or there was uh, you know because it was was it false names. If if ID check is not happening because if you deposit for example nine thousand nine hundred and it doesn't ask you for ID, then the problem here is that it was over 10,000 because the amount is set such that it it's not so much, it's so that it does not inconvenience innocent, really innocent people, but it is to catch. So there is there is a boundary that is put on by Austria, by the federal government. The bank just didn't have the controls and the security checks and systems in place to monitor these glitches and to yes. alert 
the board, and this is where the bank is in trouble. That's right. That is that is uh, allegedly what has happened. Well, Asha Rao, look, thank you very much for clarifying all of this. It's a it's a fascinating story, and thank you very yes. much for your time. You're very welcome, Gary. Very welcome. So there you go, Leon. Well, it's clear that the Commonwealth Bank did not have the risk management procedures in place. Absolutely right. And uh, I think it will cost them quite a bit in terms of bodies and uh, possibly also money. I think so. If Austrac's case is anything to go by, they're up for $1 trillion in fines, which would wipe out the bank, as uh, Rao said. But assuming for a moment that that doesn't happen, I would imagine there's going to be a whole lot of management changes and board changes as a result. Looks like a big clean out. And now let's listen to Shane Oliver. Shane Oliver, we're in the tail end of the reporting season. It's been pretty underwhelming and disappointing. What's your assessment of it? Well, overall, it's fairly mixed. On the one hand, and I sound like a typical economist here, profits are up substantially from a year ago. So we're looking at profit growth of somewhere between 17 and 18 percent for the market uh, as a whole, for the companies as a whole listed on the share market over the last financial year. Something around 70 percent of companies have reported an increase in their profits and a similar number, um, just below 70 percent, have reported an increase in dividends. So overall, the results are pretty good in the sense that we we had had two years of falling profits. Now they're rising again. I guess dig beneath the surface a bit. It's not quite as good. Firstly, the uh, the big boost to profits has come from the resources sector, where profits are up about 130 odd percent. That's the big turnaround in uh, iron ore prices and coal prices and so on we saw last financial year. And of course. Companies have ramped up their production, mining companies have ramped up their production, and of course their costs are under control. So all those things have helped the resources sector. If you look at the rest of the market, profits are up a more modest 5 or 6%. Um, and that's where there has been a little bit of disappointment, I guess, that if you look at uh, companies which have disappointed, um, there's been quite sharp shakeouts in their share prices. So Overall, if you look at the share market through the month of August to date, it's been relatively stable, but there's been quite a lot of shares that have disappointed and seen quite sharp declines in their share prices uh, through the month. So it, it has been a bit of a messy reporting season in that sense, and I guess there's a bit of uncertainty about the outlook going forward, that the big boost to resources is behind us. Um, we're probably looking at more constrained earnings growth going forward. So a lot of this was driven by the rise in the commodity prices. That's right. We saw that huge surge in the iron ore price. It hit a low uh, towards the end of 2015 of around $37 a tonne, uh, whereas, of course, earlier this year it was around, uh, got as high as $95 a tonne. But bottom line is that the iron ore price through the last financial year has been substantially above where it was the previous financial year, and that's driven that huge turnaround there. So it's it's mainly the resources sector that have given this this big upswing in uh, in profits, um, underlying profit growth is far more modest. Now, you could argue, well, 5% uh, profit growth for the underlying market, excluding resources, isn't that bad. In a, world, in a world of relatively low inflation and constrained growth, that's not a bad outcome. I guess the problem for Australia is that, that uh, profit growth in uh, US, Europe, Japan is, is running in, in double digits, far stronger than it is in Australia in an underlying sense. That's right. I mean, because the U.S. profit figures have been quite good, haven't they? Yeah, the U.S. profits uh, for the uh, year to the June quarter just passed were up 11%. 
um, and they're not as distorted by the uh, by resources stocks and material stocks. So that's a good guide to the underlying picture compared to say the five or six percent number in Australia. Likewise, when you look at Europe, uh, profit growth around thirty percent. Japan, something similar, and Asia's had pretty good uh, profit growth as well. So we're not doing too badly in the great scheme of things. We're, we're, we, our profits aren't falling anymore like they were for the previous two financial years, um, but they're not. Uh, the, the rate of growth is not as good as you can achieve elsewhere. Nonetheless, some have said it's been quite disappointing. I mean, UBS uh, said, what, uh, sort of uh, one out of three companies reported uh, earnings downgrades. I think, uh, yeah, if you look at the, uh, for example, I like to track the number of companies that surprise on the upside. And uh, as you said, we're about 85% of the way through the reporting season. The number of companies that surprised on the upside is around 38%, which is the lowest level since 2012. Um, the norm there is about, on my count anyway, we get about 44, 45% of companies surprising on the upside. So we're seeing less upside surprise. We've seen more downside surprise. Um, the worst outcome since in, t- in two years, over two and a half years. Um, and overall, we have seen a bit of a downgrade. If you go back to the start of the reporting period, the expectation was for profit growth of around 18.5%. That's now been uh, revised down, obviously using uh, that, those companies that have already reported in the, in the mix there, that's been revised down to about 17.5%. So um, there's been about 1% knocked off expectations for profit growth for the last financial year um, compared to what was the case, say, a month ago. And and I think a lot of the, the negative talk regarding the reporting season relates to those stocks that have missed. So there's been quite a few of those that sort of stick out and have seen sharp falls in their share prices for various reasons. Uh, Domino's, Telstra, Suncorp, QBE, Bluescope, Healthscope, to, to name a few. Um, now, the reasons they, they've had quite sharp falls in their share prices vary a little bit. In Telstra's case, it was the cut to the dividend. In uh, the case of Domino's, I think it was seen as a high PE growth stock that didn't quite deliver as much as the market had hoped for. Uh, others have just been uh, outlook downgrades or earnings, not quite up to what the market was expecting. But uh, it's it's those high-profile share price stocks that have, I guess, sort of sort of disappointed investors and and led to a situation where this earnings reporting season is seen as a bit disappointing. What does that uh, tell us about uh, future the the next set of earnings seasons around? Well, interestingly, the uh, expectations for the current financial year, that's 2017-2018, have actually been revised down 1.5 to 2%. So we're dropping off from, say, around 7.5% earnings growth in the last financial year to something like 1.5 to 2% for the current financial year. Now, a big part of that uh, slow slowdown is, of course, the the, the resources stocks. Uh, they're not going to report anything near the sort of profit growth they saw in the last year, unless we keep seeing the iron ore price double, and that seems unlikely. But also, uh, I guess, uh, a fallback, you know, continued mediocre growth or modest growth in uh, the rest of the market you know, of around 5% or so. So there has been a bit of a downgrade to expectations going forward as a result of um, some of the disappointment in the, light, in the reporting season that we're going through now and also because of some of the outlook statements we've seen. So how long do you expect this would continue for? Well, I think the real issue for Australian companies, uh, excluding what goes on with resources, you know, resources are basically sort of uh, held hostage to what goes on uh, in China and globally in terms of growth. Um, if 
China continues to surprise on the upside, then maybe that'll support the iron ore price and they'll, they'll see another good year. But that, that seems unlikely. But if you uh, if you strip out, and, and mind you, the resources companies are generally in good shape. They went through a massive period of investment. Uh, that's now done. They're now getting the benefit from that in terms of supply. But obviously that higher supply um, does sort of act as a bit of a constraint on pricing that they will get. But, but they have got their costs under control. So resources stocks I'm not particularly concerned about. I guess it's the rest of the market, which is really, I guess, dependent on what goes on with the Aussie economy, what happens to the banking sector, um, Australian house prices, and of course, the Australian dollar. And when you look across all of those things, it's, it's a fairly mixed and constrained environment. You know, growth in the economy as a whole uh, lately has been just below 2%. It might pick up a little bit over the next 12 months, but not dramatically so. Um, in terms of the Aussie dollar, there's a bunch of companies depend very much on what goes on overseas and the translation of those foreign earnings back to Australia. And if the Aussie dollar keeps going up, then that's going to reduce the value of those overseas earnings. Hopefully, the Aussie dollar will go down and they'll get a bit of a boost there. That's my hope. And then, of course, uh, yeah, there's the banking sector, which has had a few issues over the last few years. They're still reporting good profit growth, mind you. It's it's of the order of 4 or 5%, which is not a bad outcome. But if there's a change of government, for example, later this year, if the, if the current government is forced to a, a new election as a result of the citizenship issue, if that goes the wrong way, um, then we're looking at a banking world commission, which could put a bit of a cloud over the banks and might cost them something in terms of added costs somewhere in the pipeline. Um, and of course, there's also this dependency of what happens to house prices. If house prices come off too rapidly, then that would also affect the banks. But my base case would be that the Australian economy continues to muddle along um, and that the non-resource part of the market generates profit growth of around 5% or so, which is, isn't too bad, but it's not uh, not shooting the lights out. So while the uh, profit season is has been disappointing and uh, while we can expect subdued growth for a while, uh, we can only say it is what it is. So just have to wait and see. Well, that's sort of right. I, I guess it is what it is. Is not that bad. <laughs> I guess we keep hoping that we're going to get some return to last decade and that's not uh, likely anytime soon. I think the global environment's become a little less threatening, perhaps depending on how you look at it, perhaps than it was a year or two ago when there was this constant uncertainty about economic growth globally. Right now, global growth looks a bit bit better, but I, th I think we are in an environment of relatively constrained growth, relatively low inflation, and that keeps, uh, keeps earnings growth for the underlying market or the market excluding resources down at a relatively constrained level. That said, if we're in a world of 2% inflation and we're generating, say, 5% earnings growth from the underlying market, that's not really a bad outcome. I mean, it would be consistent with, if you sort of do the maths, do the maths, the dividend yield on Aussie shares at the moment is around 4.3%. So you're already getting about a 4.3% return from Australian shares before you do anything. You can add to that the franking credits, which are another 1% or so. So that gets you above 5% in terms of the cash flow uh, return from the Australian share market. And then if you assume that uh, that the share market rises in line with or maybe a little bit less than earnings growth over time, that probably you know, probably gives you capital growth of at least 4%, say, assuming allowing for some decline in the PE from relatively high levels. You add those numbers together, you're, you're looking at a, um, 
uh, before franking credits return of around eight and a half percent from the Australian share market. So that's about four percent capital growth and about four point three percent dividend yields. Uh, add in the franking credits, you, you push above nine percent. So eight or nine percent return from Australian shares in this environment is not a bad outcome. So even though one can lament that the <clears throat> earnings numbers weren't perhaps as good as hoped for and there, there were some big disappointments in there, um, it, it's not the end of the world. You know, Australian companies are still motoring along and they're still generally making OK profits. And if they continue as they have, then it's it's sort of roughly consistent with returns of the order of 8 or 9%. And roughly consistent with the way the economy is tracking. Yeah, which is all consistent with an economy sort of running around relatively constrained growth rate. So the Aussie economy is uh, most recent number, 1.7%, I think it was, year to the March quarter. We'll get an update next week on that as to how that goes. And I suspect that uh, growth will have picked up, probably pushing back above the 2% level, but still relatively constrained. And then, of course, domestic pricing power is relatively constrained as well. Pricing there running around 2%. So you're looking at a nominal economy um, excluding the gyrations from the terms of trade and resources prices, you're looking at a nominal economy uh, with growth of around 4% or so. So if you can get 8 or 9% out of the share market with franking credits, it's not a bad outcome in the great scheme of things. I, I guess it's just not the, the excitement that last decade generated, but last decade was a long time ago. That's right. Well, Shane Oliver, thank you very much for your time. Much appreciated. It's been my pleasure. So what do you think? Leon? Well, it's a very underwhelming reporting season, I think, and uh, Shane, Shane's been sort of shedding light on that, although he does put it in some sort of perspective. Yeah, he does, and he's not all that gloomy. He's not as gloomy as some, but, you know, it's a very muted uh, assessment, isn't it? That's right. Good Oh, Now, Leon, what have we got in the news bag? Well, Gary, analysts are saying Hurricane Harvey's impact will devastate the Texas economy, but some forecasts a limited impact on the broader U.S. economy. The hurricane has affected one quarter of oil and natural gas production in the Gulf of Mexico, with more than 10% of U.S. refining capacity shut down. Now, the Houston area provides about 40% of U.S. oil supplies, and Chuck Watson, a disaster modeler with Enki Research, told Bloomberg that Harvey's costs could be as much as $30 billion, including the impact of relentless flooding on the power grid, transportation, labour and other elements to support the region's energy sector. He said less than a third of Harvey's losses are likely to be insured, and insurance stocks actually fell this week in response to the devastation in Texas. At the same time, the Category 4 roof-lifting hurricane has sent up gasoline prices, leaving people with less money to spend or save. It's shaping up as a, as a catastrophe for Texas, the second largest economy in the US. But analysts are saying the economic devastation is likely to be localised and won't spread. IHS market has told clients that the impact on US third quarter growth will be, in their words, minimal. But others say it's way too soon to assess the broader impact as no one knows when the refineries will come back online. The problem is that the region is one of the US economy's engine rooms. While it only produces 2.4% of US GDP, it has the nation's biggest three hubs for oil refineries, is America's largest centre for chemical production, has its number two shipping port, and houses two of America's busiest airports. The this estimates the storm will result in 30 to $40 billion worth of property damage and about $7 billion in lost economic output, with most restaurants, hotels and retailers closed this week, according to Moody's Analytics. And Moody's chief economist Mark Zandi says output will be restored in two months, but it will take about two years 
to restore damaged property. That's right. I guess one of the small saving graces is that America's oil reserves are huge and so supply of oil is not going to be the problem it's refining. That's right. And interestingly enough, it sent up oil prices around the world. So Hurricane Harvey did what OPEC could not do. (laughs) (laughs) That just shows you how powerful Harvey was. That's right. Now, to um, what's happening in Australia and a sharp decline in apartment sales has dragged Australia's home sales down to a four-year low in July. Housing Industry Association show a 16% crash in apartment sales, pushed new home sales down 3.7%. Sales for the first months of a year are 4.6% lower than the same period of 2016. Adding to the 6.9% fall recorded by the HIA for June, new home sales are now at their lowest since July 2013 after peaking in 2015. Home sales fell in every state except for Victoria, where they're up 9.8%. And that, to some extent, offset the big declines in South Australia, which was down 6.2%, Queensland, which was down 6.1%, Western Australia, which fell 1.9%, and New South Wales, which fell 5.2%. So prices are easing, but the general opinion seems to be that so far as affordable housing is concerned, it's looking bleak for nearly 40 years. That's right. At the same time, I might add, that shows that the property sector is losing its heat. Added to that are figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics and they show approvals for the, for the construction of new homes fell 1.7% in July in seasonally adjusted terms. This beat market expectations for 5% fall. Building approvals were down 13.9% over the 12 months to July. On the other hand, ABS figures showed construction work done in Australia rising 9.3% in the June quarter and that beat economists' forecast for a 1% increase. Now, residential work slipped 0.4%, but engineering work for mines, roads and Bridges was up 21.5% in the June quarter. So housing construction is going down, but the population, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney, particularly Melbourne, is growing. That's so right. we're going to have a shortage of housing. That's right. And it means prices are going to keep going up. Yep. Now, after three weeks of falls, Australian consumer confidence is up again, rising 3.7% last week. And despite this, the outlook remains volatile. Households' views about current financial conditions jumped 4.7% last week, a rebound that more than reversed the 4 0.1% fall over the previous two weeks, and it brings the index to an 11-week high. Views about future financial conditions surged 6.4% following the previous week's 5.3% decline. And that said, people's feelings about future financial conditions remain below the long-term average. And ANZ's head of Australian economics, David Plank, said that while the numbers are encouraging, the volatility makes it harder to gauge the momentum. We're still pretty sensitive in the consuming area, I feel sure. That's right. Now, the Prudential Regulator has announced an inquiry into the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, which has been charged with perpetrating over 53,700 contraventions of the Anti-Money Laundering and Counter-Terrorism Financing Act of 2006. The Australian Prudential Regulation Authority said it will set up an independent panel. It will take six months to prepare a report which will be made public. The inquiry would identify any shortcomings in the governance, culture and accountability frameworks and practices within the CBA. So in effect, Gary, that's kind of like a Royal Commission. Very similar, isn't it? Another fascinating piece of news is that US broadcasting giant has snapped up Network 10 in a deal that beats Lachlan Murdoch and Bruce Gordon from acquiring it. 10's networks, receivers and managers and voluntary administration confirmed that CBS has entered into a binding agreement to buy the broadcasters 
services, business and assets, which also includes digital television, uh, Channel 11, of which CBS already owns a 33% stake, the DTT Channel 1, and Network's 10 digital platform, 10Play. Now, 10 has had a long-standing relationship with CBS as one of 10's largest creditors that made a $795.5 million claim after the company collapsed. And CBS had reportedly been willing to reduce the large repayments Network 10 owed it in exchange for equity in the embattled channel. CBS has the potential to transform third-rated TV channel 10, and for that matter, Australian television. CBS has networks high-rating shows like The Good Wife, The Good Fight, Twin Peaks, CSI and Star Trek. It's also a major player in reality TV, and it's planned to launch its video-on-demand service CBS All Access, which is expected to compete with Netflix and Stan, and CBS already has a content agreement with Stan. Now, the deal still needs approval from a majority of the 14-person creditors committee, the Foreign Investment Review Board, and the court in transferring all the shares from the shareholders of CBS. And there's some talk, Gary, of a class action at the moment from shareholders who say they're not going to get a good deal. It's going to change the shape of Australian uh, free-to-air, though. I think it will. Seven and nine are making losses. This is going to really put pressure on them. Now, with Amazon preparing to launch in Australia, Coles is looking to e-commerce company Uber to beef up its online offering. Coles has been running a trial using Uber this month out of its Stark store in the Melbourne suburb of Richmond South. The trial, which runs to September, will see Uber drivers delivering items from online orders. Now, neither Coles nor Uber are giving much away, with the Coles spokesman telling the media the trial is, in their words, short and limited. Now, Uber is operating the Coles same-day delivery trial under its Uber Rush brand, which is also being trialled with several major retailers in the US, including Walmart and Nordstrom. At this stage... No one is sure what Amazon's grocery delivery service will be like, but after closing its deal to acquire upmarket grocery chain Whole Foods Market in the US, it cut food prices there by 43%. Which would be welcome in Australia. That's right. So let's just watch what happens. And finally, Gary, the company profits are coming in with the tail end of the August profit reporting season. And here are the reports so far. Global construction and development giant Lend Lease reported a 9% lift in full year net profit to $758.6 million. Plumbing products designer and manufacturer Reliance Worldwide has reported a net profit of $65.6 million, beating its prospectus forecast. Footwear retailer RCG's net profit slipped 2 to 29.2 million. Spark Infrastructure posted a 2.9% increase in half year net profit of 48.9 million. Adairs reported earnings before interest and tax down 21.5% to 30.8 million. Murray River Organics posted a $6 million statutory loss. Telco and Masim's net profit after tax fell 7% to 11.5 million. Vitamin Maker Blackmore's full year profit plunged to 59 million compared with 100 million a year ago. Online homewares retailer Temple and Webster posted a loss of 7.8 million in 12 months ending June compared with losses of 43.5 million in 2016. Clothing retailer Specialty Fashion Group reported an $8.4 million loss. Caltex Australia's benchmark profit jumped 21% to $307 million, but its net income, taking into account the impact of oil prices, fell 17% to $265 million. Atlas Iron posted a net profit of $48 million for the year to June 30, up from its $159 million net loss last year. Cab Charge, under pressure of Uber, posted a $90.6 million full year loss down from its $25.6 million profit in 2016. Retail Food Group reported its net profit rising 17% to $61.9 million in 2017. Boral posted a 16% rise in net profit of $269.9 million. Australia's largest private hospital operator Ramsey Healthcare reported net profit of $542.7 million up 12.7%. Billabong has posted a $77.1 million loss on the back of non-cash impairments and other charges and 
that's it for this week, Gary. And you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBiz, B-I-Z-Z, or on Facebook. And next week, we're talking to Tony Falkenstein. Yep, should be very interesting. In the meantime, take care, and we'll talk to you next week.